Hey, Soakers, welcome to Bath and Body Parts. Today, we continue the story of the Pettit family murders. What happened in this case, we continue the many, many controversies that are going to unfold around it. episode contains references to sexual assault, sexual assault of a child, suicide attempts, and disturbing violence. Please use your discretion. By the time the trials for Stephen and Josh were set to begin in 2010 and 2011, this case was highly publicized between just the sheer gruesomeness of the crime and the controversy over police response, it got a lot of media attention, even to a national degree. Anderson Cooper, I think they showed clips of in the documentary. Oh, yeah. For sure. And it was to a degree that this was going to be very hard to select the juries. I always think about this when I, like, even cases that are happening, like, now or in very recent years, when I hear about something that happens in, like, on the other side of the country, I think about how I wouldn't even be an impartial jury member, right? Because I'm getting information and I'm forming my opinions as I'm getting this information. So this particular case must have been, where do you find anyone that doesn't know about this? And I think that that is a problem that must be harder and harder as time goes on because now it's not even that I'm forming my own opinion in my own home. I'm on social media and there's a Reddit post and YouTube comments and all the things and people are fueling the fire. Yeah. Yeah. It said that in Hayes' trial, which was first, they interviewed more than 2,000 jurors. Holy moly, that is a lot. Yeah. And they said pretty much universally, everyone was familiar with the case. And if you're familiar with the case, you pretty much already know that Hayes is guilty because they've confessed to these crimes. It's not as if they're trying to say that they didn't commit the crimes. Right. But this is the one that really got me. Of those jurors... They said that almost 75% of them said that he should be put to death. Wow. So to go into the trial with jury members that are saying you should be executed is very extreme. Yeah. And so, of course, the lawyers moved for the trial to be relocated out of the area, but the request was denied, which Mm. I think was very interesting. Yeah, that, that surprised me, too. One would think for if any ever, case should be moved out for everyone involved, right? At, yes, I I would be very curious to know the reasoning behind that. Yes, but I will say that even throughout the we'll get into it, but through the appeals mm-hmm. process, it never seems like this was a misstep. So I'm sure. sure that they had their reasons for keeping it there, and yeah. it doesn't seem to have been a big enough deal to be any kind of a red flag or controversy or anything like that. Sure. Now, during jury selection, Hayes actually attempted to commit suicide by taking large amounts of clonopin and Thorazine, but he recovered and was deemed fit to continue with the trial. And in the documentary, they talk about how he had just been hoarding pills, right? Like, these were were pills that he was prescribed that he had not been taking regularly that he just had accumulated with this specific idea in mind. He was basically on suicide watch from 
the get-go yeah. when he was arrested. And yeah, so he'd just been stashing, stashing for who knows how long. Yeah. Now, both of these trials were going to be very unusual. The defendants had confessed to the crimes. They had no plans to claim that they were uninvolved. Instead, defense attorneys were hoping to point the finger at the other perpetrator and minimize their client's involvement. Now, since both of them did say, yes, we were actively involved, there's DNA evidence that both of them committed assaults. Both of them are claiming responsibility for some aspects of the violence. So they really also had to essentially show that there were circumstances that hindered their client's ability to step up and stop the crime or to leave or in some way kind of minimize it where it was almost like a power dynamic where the other person's spearheading and this person is just following. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's unusual. This is, these are unusual cases. Yeah. In terms of the trial. So Hayes' lawyers really focused on his history of drug use and anger issues, and they pointed at Josh as basically a sick predator who had orchestrated the crime. They indicated that he, that this wasn't even necessarily about money for Josh, that he had done this in order to get access to Michaela. And, you know, this level of of violence and all of the details in this crime made this just a, a really horrible, horrible trial. Yeah. The jury deliberated for about four and a half hours before delivering his verdict on October 4th, 2010. He was guilty of 16 counts, including all three murders. There was assault, you know, breaking and entering, arson, a whole long list of convictions there. Hayes' sentencing hearing began on October 18th. For these murders, the sentencing was essentially the trial because we don't think anybody expected either of these men to go free. Uh, But the question was now, are they going to be executed or sentenced to life in prison? This was obviously a huge political hot topic, as capital punishment always is. William and all of the family members were very vocal over the years leading up to the trials, adamantly believing that both men should be executed. To complicate matters, during the course of all of this unfolding, Connecticut was actually in the process of trying to abolish the death penalty. Yeah, so this had been sort of a big political movement in Connecticut at the time before the murders were even committed. And this kind of put a kink in that because I think it changed a lot of people's minds. And because William was so vocal and was going around and, and talking and giving speeches and meeting Mm -hmm. with politicians and everything. I I do think that it it absolutely impacted that aspect of Connecticut law. Sure. Because if, if Connecticut was going to abolish the death penalty, this would only apply to future cases. However, if that was going to happen, it would be unlikely that a jury would sentence anyone to death. And again, William was speaking to politicians. He was pushing against the abolition of the death penalty. Hayes was very vocal about wanting to be put to death. His suicide notes talked about the pain of the trial and wanting to spare everyone and that he did not want to live with what he had done. On November 8th, the jury sentenced Hayes to death. And in response, he smiled. Hayes actually had no desire to appeal his sentencing or anything like that. 
But his lawyers had other plans and immediately began moving forward with the appeals process. Like they're doing their due diligence. That's their job. They have to. They have to. And the state offered counseling for the jurors after the trial. To really just think speaks to how hard this case was oh. to to be on the jury, to be involved yes. at all. Even watching the documentary, I was like, this is so dark. And there are details that are not shared in the documentary, right? That would have been shared in the trial. And even with what I got, I was like, oh gosh. Yes. Like, Reading this is a lot. some of the excerpts from the trial, the articles published in the Hartford Current at the time. It, it was very, this was a yeah. hard case. It's hard. Yeah. The following year, Josh's trial began and his lawyers really focused on his childhood, the sexual abuse, his traumatic background, and tried to paint him as you know, being somebody who really was unable to distinguish right from wrong to the degree that a regular person was. Mm -hmm. They pointed at Hayes as this older, drug-addicted career criminal that was leading Josh into a bad direction. But, you know, in his trial, his confession was played out loud. And it is chilling. And when he talks about assaulting Michaela and details this. Yeah. One of the jurors became mm -hmm. so upset that the court actually had to stop the tape and end the trial early for the day. Like it's haunting. Uh, oh my gosh. I feel badly for anyone that had to listen to that, right? Like yeah. Yeah. It's horrifying. And then in prison, Josh also kept a journal and it was a 43-page journal. Many of the pages were read out loud uh, at the sentencing. Some of it was read out loud at the actual trial as well. And these are pretty disturbing. Sure. The language that he uses, he talks about being haunted by demons, stealing intimacy, kind of being awakened, his shadow being awakened. Yeah. He really does not sound remorseful in these writings at all. Sure. And in the journal, he also blames William for the murders, saying that that's why they killed mm. the girls and calling him a coward. And I just, that is so infuriating to me. Oh my gosh. Ugh. I, uh, like, <laughs> that's, that's mm. it's just horrifying yeah on october 13th 2011 josh was found guilty of 17 charges including the three murders and his sentencing began on october 24th that's where the jury really heard the entire journal and mm. you know prosecutors mm -mm. pointed to obviously he's not actually remorseful at all despite whatever he's telling you and on december 9th 2011 josh was sentenced to death If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to bonus content and extra mini true crime cases, plus get access to our exclusive Bath & Body Parts bath bombs, we'd love to have you join our Patreon as a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber. Visit patreon.com slash bathandbodyparts to learn more. So while the case seemed like it was over, in many ways, it was just beginning. Because like we talked about, capital punishment is a very slow process. Every appeal has to be exhausted and it takes years. And most people who are sentenced to death are 
actually never even executed. And in April of 2012, right in the middle of the appeals process for Hayes and Josh, Connecticut abolished the death penalty for future cases. The case and the trials had slowed the momentum in that direction, but it had ultimately pushed through. Now, it wasn't immediately clear how this was going to impact these past cases. In the meantime, not only were the appeals continuing, but more controversy was coming back to the surface regarding the police action on the morning of the murders. In 2013, 911 tapes were released that painted this in a different light. In the tapes, you can hear Lieutenant James Fasano telling the dispatcher, quote, Apparently, she came into the bank. She tried to get some money out. One of the accounts was in her husband's name, and then she says, Well, my kids are at home tied up, so we don't know if they really are or if she's just trying to get money at this point. She was calm. She didn't appear upset. She walked into the bank. She got the money. She was by herself. The other person was in the car. And yeah, they seemed to believe that Jennifer was orchestrating some sort of plan to get money or that she wasn't being honest. One officer... And like the, oh my the fact that they said like, she was calm. She didn't appear upset. Like, I understand in a way that they're like, oh, well, if her family's at home tied up, like she would be hysterical. But also she's trying to remain calm to save her family, right? Like, and like, in the 911 <laughs> call, the bank manager specifically used the word petrified. So yes. she wasn't even calm. Just because she's not like breaking down into tears on her knees in the middle of the bank doesn't mean that she's not going through horrible, horrible things. She's trying to keep her children's yes. lives. Yes. You know, she's trying to save her children's lives. It's yes. horrifying to me that they took this, this stance, especially given the fact that the bank, when they called, they took this very seriously. Yes. It's so infuriating. Yeah. One officer said, quote, I don't know if she's a wing nut or if this is something actually. Seems kind of unreal that we've not had anything with this family before. Why don't you head down to that area and see if we can intercept this car? So they're saying that it's weird because they'd never, like the police had never interacted. Is that what they're saying? Yeah. Like they're basically. This family is not known to the police. So obviously nothing bad can happen to them. No. I mean, I think that what they're saying is that they, since they think that she is orchestrating something. Oh, that she's trying. Okay. So they're like, she's trying to steal money and we don't know about her. That's what they're saying. Okay. That's how I take it. Okay. Now, the tapes also reveal superiors telling officers to stand out and set up a perimeter instead of entering the home and talking about a hostage negotiator or SWAT team not being called in, which we'll get to our thoughts on that mm-hmm. at the end. So don't worry. Put a pin in that one. <laughs> Josh's lawyer used these tapes to file another appeal since these were not given into evidence earlier doesn't really have a bearing on the case, but they really have to exhaust all possibilities for appeal. Sure. Police maintained that these calls were not withheld on purpose, but were only withheld due to human error. Whether I believe that or not, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We'll talk more on that. On August 13th, 2015, Connecticut Supreme Court ruled that capital punishment was unconstitutional. All existing death row inmates had to be resentenced 
to life in prison, including Stephen and Josh. This was a big blow to the family. William spoke out firmly against this decision, stating that the court should consider the emotional toll that the families had gone through. He was very politically involved and very, very openly critical of this decision. Now, that's essentially what happened throughout the course of the trial and that's sort of mm-hmm. the end of, of the case and its bones. But let's talk a little bit about the aftermath. William really has done his best to move on with his life, although his family is obviously still very dear to his heart. He started the Pettit Family Foundation, and their mission is to provide help to educate young people, especially those in the sciences, to help support those with chronic illnesses, and to help to protect those affected by violence. And this, to me, is like, this is the epitome of, like, taking positive action even when there's no positive spin on what happened, but for him to have the mental and emotional fortitude to use this as something to help other people, to prevent things, and to also educate young people in the sciences because he and his wife were both in the medical field and his daughter wanted to follow in that same footstep. Like, that's beautiful to me. And it... it really does speak a lot to who he is as a person. Yes, I agree. In 2012, he remarried. He actually met his second wife through the foundation, which I thought was a a little bit of a heartwarming detail there. And they actually welcomed a son, William Pettit III, in 2013. So I'm glad that he was able to find some happiness And he actually eventually got into a career in politics, largely fueled by his involvement in the legislative process around the death penalty. Uh, He was elected to the Connecticut House of Representatives in 2016. He was reelected most recently in 2020. He did say he's not seeking election in 2022. Well, even in the short clips in the documentary where he is speaking about this, like he does have a really good command of an audience. He knows how to keep people engaged. Very well-spoken, highly educated person. Yes, definitely. Let's talk for a minute about the... He spoke at the funeral. This was just five days after this happened, which Mm -hmm. I can't even begin to fathom how hard that was. His wounds are still there. Yes. When we talk about like what happened to him and the neighbors that saw him that day, like... If he looked so injured five days after, I cannot imagine what he looked like that day. But to attend the funeral of your family members and look so... Like, he looks bad. Like, it looks... Like, it hurts. Like, it's horrible. It's on his head. Like, a huge gash. So much emotion watching that. But I just... I thought even the way that he spoke there was... I just admire him so much. He yes. He's talking about how he met Jennifer. And I just thought that this was really cute because he talked about how when he met her, he was a third-year medical student. And she was a pediatric nurse at the hospital where he was doing his learning mm-hmm. and his residency there. And I guess he was he, he called himself a know-it-all medical student. And he <laughs> tried to tell her how to take the blood pressure. <laughs> and I could just picture this so clearly, right? Yes, and then he yes, said, you yes. know, she obviously knew so much more about healing in children than I ever would. Yeah. 
it was just clear that he loved her so much and that he admired her so much. And I admire him so much because of the way that he has come through this and his strength. Yeah. The documentary is, is pretty good. Um, If it's a little bit different those of yes. you listening, it's not necessarily my favorite documentary, but I think that it is worth watching to see him specifically yes. if you see nothing yes. else. It doesn't go into a lot of the details of the crime. It's not really, that's that's not really the focus. Sure. There's more about the controversy of the death penalty. And it, it's very long for me to be talking that much about more of the controversies. Yes. But I, I think it is worth watching just to see the family members talk because yep. it, it's it's good to hear from them, I think. I agree. And that's the case of the Pettit family. So let's get into our thoughts on the case. There's a lot to unpack. We are not sure. going to be touching the death penalty or our opinions on that because no. we don't think that no. that's appropriate. So we're no. just not going I don't to. even really even know my opinions on that. Like, you know, I don't even know. <laughs> I know, but I'm not going to share. <laughs> Uh, I don't think it's appropriate to talk about in the face of a specific case. So Yes. But let's talk about the police procedure. I think that this is something, it gets brought up a lot. Mm -hmm. I think given the information that comes out later in 2013, uh, it's hard to say that there's not a misstep here. Mm -hmm. I try to give the benefit of the doubt where I can often. Mm -hmm. Obviously, a hostage situation is a complicated thing. You can't just rush in. Yes. You can't. You can't just run into the house. Nope. Um, I don't really see why they couldn't have stopped Stephen and Jennifer from entering the home. Yep. I definitely don't understand why a hostage negotiator was not immediately brought in. Immediately. I don't understand why, if there are hostages inside and you're setting up a perimeter, you're not talking to them, trying to call in, trying to speak with them, because that's what should be happening, in my opinion. Yes, totally. Totally agree. I don't know that I can say with certainty that they didn't follow procedure, but I think I can say pretty strongly that if that was their procedure, their procedure needs to be reevaluated. Yes. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I don't know. I mean, I really think that the information that came out later doesn't, doesn't make them look great. Right. And some of the like, uh, quotes from the transcript just, with knowing what happened and hearing them say, I don't know if she's a wing nut, you know, like it's just not so good. Not so good uh, quotes from those, those calls. Um, and the bottom line, everything happens so quickly in this case. They're at the yes. end. They were yes. outside the home while Jennifer was being raped. Yeah. They were outside the home while Jennifer was being murdered. Yeah. They were outside the home yeah. while gasoline was being poured. And they were outside the home when the fire was being set. And I, I don't know that they could have stopped any of it. It, it did happen no. so fast. Yes. But but the, there's maybe. a part of you, right, that like wants to believe that they could have just come in and saved everyone like a hero, right? Like that there's yeah. that part of you that's like, if only, if I mean, only. But and, and realistically, I don't know that it, it would have turned out 
completely no. differently, but I think that it could have turned out somewhat differently. Yeah. At the very least, I think that they could have stopped Jennifer and Stephen from entering the home. Yeah. And that at least there might be one more survivor. I don't know. I mean, it, it's... Yeah. I'm not going to at all say it's their fault. No, Because I no. don't think that that's the case. No. I think that it was a complicated situation. Yep. But I think that a hostage negotiator should have been the first person there. I think that Absolutely. some other action should have yes. been taken. If the people at the bank said that this woman was saying her family is tied up at home and they said she was petrified, they gave the information of the vehicle and everything, the hostage negotiator should have been involved in the setting up the perimeter. Like they should have been present as soon as that information came through. And, and it's hard to believe that they didn't just approach the situation assuming that this was not what it actually was. That right. they didn't approach this with thinking that Jennifer was somehow involved right. in this. I don't think that it does not seem to me, and obviously on the outside of the case, you only get so much information. It does sure. not seem to me that they approach that home with urgency. Yeah. As if there were three hostages inside and one hostage outside. I don't feel like that's how they approached it. I do think there was probably a layer of disbelief that this would happen in this neighborhood, in this area to these people. Like we talked about how this was like a nice, you know, well-to-do area and very quiet, you know, these types of things you don't want to believe could happen around you or in your community, especially if you're in that situation. And so I wonder if there was like, well, obviously that can't be true, right? Like obviously not. But again, it's like you still have to take things seriously if they're being, you know, reported. And I don't know. It's just really tough. I don't think it's any any person's fault other than Steve and Josh. They're obviously the ones to blame for this Absolutely. horrible crime. Mm-hmm. I don't think that anybody else should be, you know, should be taking the, the blame and the fault. It is just something to think about, like, could this have been differently? And it, in some ways, you're like, yeah, that would be great. And in some ways, you're like, I don't know. I, I don't know if it would have been, you know, could it have been worse? Like, could could William have been killed in the in some sort of confusion of right. rushing in and, you know, things like that. So I don't know. But I I just feel very it's sad about this case. A really, really, really sad case. It's very, like, the documentary is is dark in the way that when you watch a documentary that focuses just a little bit on the actual crime and more on the aftermath, it's almost a little bit jarring, right? You're watching it and you're like, oh my gosh, this is, oh my, oh my gosh. Like, and I don't even get all the details, right? They do keep some things back, but I just, I was not familiar with this case until I watched this documentary and I, I just felt bleak afterwards. It's, it's not, it's not easy. It's not easy. It's, it's very disturbing. I think knowing that there are people out there like Josh, well, I guess that's our other thing to talk about. Who do you think was the spearheader? This is purely, obviously, just our speculation, so. Yeah, I, I really hesitate, um, I hesitate to make one of them really 
be that I do feel like they were both in a position where maybe they were, I don't want to say egging each other on, but like encouraging each other's behavior. Yeah, I I tend to agree with that. I don't think that one of them was necessarily, I I think if someone was, I think it was probably more Josh than Steven, but the bottom line is Steven was very violent as well. Very much. What makes me think that Josh was the one who started this plan is the fact that he followed them home from the grocery store and that it is likely that mm, the daughter, Michaela, was part of what what got, what caught his eye. I agree with that. There's some very disturbing details centering around this case. Yes. It's horrifying. Yeah. So that that's what makes me think that if there's a person who came up with what the plan was and probably adjusted the plan as things went, I would say that it would be him. But I believe that both of them were doing nothing to dissuade one another of their poor choices and escalating violence, these types of things. I agree with that. And I do think that there might have been an element of sort of feeding off of each other. Yes. It's just really horrifying. But I think that Josh is super creepy. And the fact that people like him exist in the world, going around doing things like breaking in and listening to people that it's just it's so creepy and so horrifying yeah there's something and especially like his his journals in the prison and like the like we talked about the language that he uses it's a very disturbed mind but to me still very much aware right like not 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 far gone, right? Like aware of your choices and actions, but so disturbed. And, you know, the last thing is, yeah, just that we, I really sympathize with the family, William, all of the surviving members. And obviously this is not something that you ever really move on from, but I hope that they have some peace Yeah, I know that they do not feel like justice was served, and I'm sure that that is very hard for them. Yeah. And I I just hope that they are able to to find some sort of closure and that they are able to find some happiness in life despite going through this horrible tragedy. Well, we would love to hear your thoughts on the case. Please find us on all the socials at Body Parts Pod. Yes, we love when we get like comments on our posts and DMs and things like that. We love all of that. We love interacting with our listeners. And um, even in person, like I've had people at work, you know, tell me, hey, like I really, you know, I listened to the latest episode or even yesterday we went out and uh, ran into someone that listens to the podcast and they, they were telling Matthew like, I love the way that you work the sound editing because it's just so it's so evenly mixed and it's not like one person's louder than the other. So like we really love hearing everything. It's very good. Yeah, Matthew. Yeah. Oh my oh gosh. My like gosh. the level of work that he puts into this podcast. You know, we do a lot of work. Sure. We do a lot of research, but I'm going to say yeah. he's definitely the one putting in oh the most my gosh. effort. Far and yes. above. Far and above. Yeah. It's it, it's really like he he's behind the scenes and I know he doesn't like to be 
you know, in the forefront. Like he doesn't, you know, he doesn't like being the center of attention, but really like he deserves all the shout outs and everything. He really does. He really does. And thank you to Matthew also for covering. I've We have been so sick here. And oh my gosh. Yes, we have stepped it. in. And, yeah, and, we've yeah. got an episode that we recorded together while you were sick. That'll be coming out prior to this one. Yes. So, so thank you. Yeah. Huge thank you to Matthew, who's like, I don't want to do it, but I'll do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, now it's time for self-care and prepare. Woo-hoo! So my self-care tip has nothing to do with this case, but yep. uh, doing a lot of work around postpartum depression. Now, fun fact, did you know it can start anytime? Um, no. It can, well, anytime up to a year. So oh, wow. I am likely currently battling postpartum depression that has sort of onset very late. Okay. But my self-care tip today centers around taking care of yourself during pregnancy. And I think this is something that's really important because I recently learned that 50% of what we call postpartum depression actually starts during pregnancy. And I don't think people know that. No, not at all. And you're going through all these changes. And so, you know, take care of yourself. Really pay attention to your mental health before your baby is born, after your baby is born. Talk to your doctor. Be open about this. Don't just assume that this is something that you have to live with. You know, get treatment. And as like non-pregnant people or people who have no intention or ability to get pregnant, what can we do to take care of our pregnant friends? Like what what can we do to help? I think checking in is the first thing. I think that sometimes when you're in that situation, especially if you're pregnant and you think that you, this is supposed to be the happiest time of your life, that you're supposed to be super excited about the baby and you're supposed to be yeah. like glowing. this glowing. Yes. Yeah. I think it can be very hard to admit to yourself that you're battling this. Sure. And so I would just say, you know, keep checking in because... I think the first time that you ask somebody, they're going to say, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, or I'm just yeah, tired, yeah, yeah. or oh, I'm just stressed out. But yeah, just continually checking in and letting them know that it's okay to be vulnerable yeah. and to kind of let that guard down. I think a lot of, of cases are sometimes mild enough to where they just sort of go under the radar, but they do fester. And yeah, yeah, I would just say that just to uh, kind of check in and, and maybe share that statistic with them because I think that, people don't know and I think it's something that's important to know sure then that's that's helpful for that's helpful for us too yeah that's helpful and my prepare tip is to get a home alarm system this is something that really happened a lot in this area after this time I think obviously we never ever ever want to do or say anything that might even remotely blame a victim. No. Um, so, of course, nothing wrong if this happened to anybody. It is not in any way their fault. But a home alarm system can certainly give you a little bit of peace of mind, yeah. can serve as a protective factor. Um, you know, you can, there yeah. are like at home versions, there are monitored mm-hmm. versions. All kinds of yeah. things. So, you know, just look into it. Floodlights are a big deterrent. Yes, for I was going to say, I was going to say that mm-hmm. I think last school year, like not within our city, but on the outskirts, there were like a slew of car break ins in driveways. And so even some of my coworkers like installed floodlights on their own, like by themselves, they got all the stuff, you know, they watched videos on how to do it, but yeah. they feel a lot more. I think it's all about that sense of peace, yes. right? Like a, yeah, just a sense of you're doing what you can to, yeah. to protect yourself and, and to feel better about your situation. Yep. 
Okay, Soakers, we'll leave it here for today. Tune in with us next week to hear another tale of true crime. Until then, self-care for the best, prepare for the worst, but most importantly, take care of yourself. We'll catch you next time on Bath and Body Parts. Bye. Bye. Parts merch, snag your shirts, mugs, fanny packs, towels, and more at bathandbodypartspodcast.com slash merch. If you'd like to support the show and get access to VIP perks like ad-free content, early access to episodes, and extra episodes each month, along with special segments and exclusive merch, including the Bath and Body Parts Bath Bomb, you can become a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber on our Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash bathandbodyparts to get started.